seated. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are turning this evening to the book of Esther, which we've been studying in the ladies' Bible study, and uh, thought I might bring you some of the thoughts and uh, things that we've been discussing. Um, I'd like to read to you the, the whole of this first, uh, just the, the, the all 17 verses of chapter 4, I should say. And I'll speak about the context in a moment. But breaking into the story in Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And at every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came to her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hatlak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hatax went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai, and Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him the command for Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman that goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did, according to all that Esther commanded him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that in 
our times of distress, that we might have such insight and such uh, courage before you. You are a promising God. You are our help and our shield. And why should the nation say, where is their God? Oh God, you are in heaven and do all that please you. So may it please you to work a mighty work in our day. Deliver your people. Glorify your name for the sake of your servant Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Providence is a word that means simply planning for the future or making a good use of your resources. If somebody doesn't put aside some money for a rainy day, we say they are improvident. That is, they haven't provided or planned for the future or used their resources well as they ought. This word is often also used, certainly in theology, to describe how God preserves and governs the world he made with his purposes in mind, how he cares for his creation, how he directs the course of the world for his own glory and our good. Jesus, for example, says, aren't two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is the providence of God toward us and toward all that he has made. That word providence used to be much more commonly used in, in English. You, know, you could think about how places like Providence, Rhode Island were named after it, as well as a variety of colleges and streets and churches throughout the country. Uh, today, people talk pretty commonly about luck. People 100 years ago talked as commonly about providence. I was struck recently by uh, Anne of Green Gables and uh, how they wouldn't say, oh, what luck. They would say, providence, providence, right? Christian people had more than awareness that God was directly involved in their daily lives, and they reflected that. Certainly Christian people reflected that in their everyday vocabulary. Providence is one of the most fascinating, important, and difficult doctrines of the Christian faith. It deals with big matters like this. How can God's purpose and will interact with ours? How is God's sovereign rule compatible with our free choices? How can evil be under the rule of God without making God either the author or approver of it, which he assures us he is certainly not? It says in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, that he's in control of everything that happens, even apparently random events. Proverbs 16 says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God rules over the natural world. Similarly, Psalm 104, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man. Or Jesus says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the, on the good, sending his rain on the just and on the unjust. God rules over the nations. God told the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And therefore, Romans 13 says of rulers, there is no authority, none except from God and that the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Even the very hearts of men are in the Lord's hands, as we are reminded in Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. 
So it is in our salvation, as you remember what it says of Lydia, that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Well, I won't multiply examples simply to say that everything in this world and in our lives, everything is under the good, wise, and powerful government of God. He's got the whole world in his hands, you and me, brother, the little bitty babies, the wind and the rain, not a single atom of the universe does not comply with his sovereign purpose. And it's this powerful governance of the unseen God who works nevertheless in and through secondary causes and human decision and even sinful action that lies at the heart of this magnificent book of Esther. I've been enjoying it so much, I thought I would consider a few things with you from Esther together this evening. It's a very unusual book of the Bible. Nobody prays or repents or confesses sins in it. No one worships or praises God. No one calls upon God. There is no mention of God's law. There's no mention of Jerusalem or Zion or God's worship or God's temple. Uh, the name of God is certainly absent from the book. And yet everything that happens, everything that happens, comes together in a way so wonderful and powerful and dramatically beautiful to fulfill God's promises for his people. It is a very powerful and pregnant reminder that just because God isn't seen doesn't mean he's not there and mightily at work. And so... The main purpose of this book of Esther is, apparently, to open the reader's eyes to the power, wisdom, and loving kindness of the unseen God who is always with us and for us. And the medium is the message in so many ways. Now, we tend to undervalue providence. That is to say, we think that perhaps the great things in the world that God does in the world, or the things that God, done, God does through miracles, wow, those are amazing. In prayer meetings, perhaps, we are very excited when God acts dramatically. We don't get very excited by more ordinary works of providence, as though God were somehow less involved or less to be thanked or less glorious, just because he is orchestrating all things to bring about his purposes in a different way. Esther gets us very excited about providence, or one writer puts it this way. In the book of Exodus... God's work is all thunder and lightning, full of dramatic interventions and things that expose the emptiness of the Egyptian gods. There are great heroes like Moses and Aaron to lead the people and a trail of miracles to attest to God's presence with them. In the book of Esther, however, we see God working invisibly and behind the scenes. Here there are neither dramatic miracles nor great heroes just apparently ordinary providence, moving flawed and otherwise undistinguished people into exactly the right place at exactly the right time to bring the empire into line and establish God's purposes for his people. Is it less dramatic when God fulfills his purpose that way? Oh, yes. Is it less wonderful? Is it less astonishing? No, it is not. 
We come to the passage before us. The year is 475 BC, the 12th year of the reign of Ahasuerus, the emperor of Persia, and the ruler over most of the civilized world, 127 provinces that stretch from India to Ethiopia, a land mass about the same size as the United States, uh, representing just about all the wealth in the world of that day. A few years earlier, King Ahasuerus divorced his wife Vashti on a whim and married a beautiful Jewish orphan named Esther. The Jews, though, are now facing a great threat to their very existence. Haman, the prime minister, the vizier, he wants to have them exterminated, and as we read, a pogrom is planned. Haman has proclaimed the royal decree throughout the empire according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which can never be revoked. Chapter 3, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, and to plunder their goods. It's a story that has been one of utter calamity up to this point. We read at the turning point here in chapter 4. One man describes it dryly like this. It's like a Mexican soap opera with Persian subtitles. It has it all. You've got powerful, rich, drunken men, beautiful women, corrupt politicians, and death on the horizon. All right. I kind of like that. And yet, behind the scenes, we have, we have God's promises to his people to bless those who bless you and to curse those who curse you. We have the curse, you remember, on Amalek that is going to be fulfilled eventually here. Uh, though so many centuries have passed since it was given during the Exodus. God's purposes turning on very small matters. Mordecai hears the decree of the king, and he tears his robes. He sends to his relative Esther, speak to the king, he says, intercede for your people. Maybe he will hear you, and we will be saved. Uh, I'd like to cover this passage with four points that I'm taking directly from Ted Donnelly's excellent sermon. First, uh, the burden we cannot bear. The burden we cannot bear. Imagine the situation. As far as can be seen, there is but one hope. And that is Esther. Her name means a star. And their sky was dark. No light to be seen. The king had decreed, decreed their destruction. Who could help them? Who could intercede for them? As far as could be seen, there was only one person. And you might expect Mordecai to come to Esther and say, Esther, you are our only hope. We have no other help but you. The fate of the Jewish nation is resting on your shoulders. Our destiny is in your hands. That would be a very good and persuasive argument. But what does Mordecai say in verse 14? Do you see? He says, if you don't help us, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You say, Mordecai, what are you, what are you saying? 
He's giving her a way out. He's destroying his whole case. She can say, well, if relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, then I don't have to do anything. And we say, Mordecai, what are you saying? But think of the amazing faith of this man, Mordecai. For his faith is not in Esther. His hope is not in Esther. His faith and hope are in the living God who has promised to preserve his people. It wasn't that Mordecai was naive and thought there was no danger. It's not that he was a blind optimist. Maybe the king will change his mind. It's not that he had some backup plan. Well, there's somebody else I know. There was no one else. There was no other apparent hope. There was no other human hand. But Mordecai would not say something that he didn't believe, even for the best reasons. And his faith in a moment of apparent disaster, stands out clear and glorious. If you don't help us, I don't see any other way out. But God won't fail us. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And he refuses to place upon Esther the ultimate burden. Do you see that? He says, I'm going to ask you to do something. But before I ask, I want you to know this. It doesn't depend upon you, Esther. He doesn't even say, we need you. God's cause is safe. His people are safe. Not a hair from their heads will fall to the ground apart from his sovereign will. And while a psychologist or a manager would appeal to Esther's pride or sense of indispensability, we need you, the nation needs you, Mordecai not only doesn't mention it, he goes out of his way to deny it. Before he says anything else, he says, I want you to know God's people are safe. There is a burden that we should not bear. We do not bear the ultimate burden in this world. And that is an important principle for us today. Certainly in the church, too much of the Appeal takes the other approach, appealing to our pride or self-esteem. God has no hands but our hands. God needs you. The church needs you. The appeal is perhaps to pity God. Well, poor old God, let's give him a hand. That's not true. Acts 17.25, God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. Anything. God's cause is safe. His people are safe. That responsibility is not ours. It doesn't all depend upon us. This is the responsibility we must refuse. We have a tremendous responsibility. I'll speak of that in a moment, but not the ultimate one. And we can labor. We could see little fruit for our labor and still hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because we don't bear the ultimate responsibility. There's people whose salvation you're concerned about, I'm sure. You're praying for their salvation. You're agonizing. You're speaking. You're yearning to see them saved, brought into the kingdom of everlasting life in Christ. You have a burden and a responsibility, yes, but not the ultimate one. You parents are concerned for your children, for the work of God in their hearts, and you have a tremendous responsibility, but not the ultimate responsibility. And at the end of the day, when you've prayed and you've taught and you've disciplined and trained and you can pray on your knees, Lord, they're yours. 
Yours is the ultimate responsibility. We cannot bear the ultimate responsibility for things in this world. Ultimately, they are in God's hands. But let's come secondly to the privilege we have been given. The privilege we have been given. What a dramatic change had taken place in Esther's life. If you know the story, previously she was in exile, taken as a captive in a strange land, the despised immigrant from a conquered nation. And, if that wasn't bad enough, she was an orphan, no father or mother to care for her. You can hardly imagine uh, a more lowly, insecure, humble, unenviable position of weakness at such a time. A captive, exile, Jewish orphan. Mordecai comes to her and says, Esther, where are you now? You're not in exile anymore. You're a queen. Look at what's happened in your life. Look at the chains. Wealth, security, status, position, power, influence, ease. Your whole life has trans- transformed. You, he says, have come to the kingdom. He points out the marvelous change, you see, the benefits she's received, the privileges that she's been given. And, and he says, Esther, why has this happened to you? Think, why? Why has this change taken place? Does it not speak to you? Have you not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That is to say, has not God brought you here? And does this not speak to you of a certain responsibility? The burden that he places upon her is not that of need. It's that of privilege. It's a responsibility, but it's the responsibility of blessing. Esther, you've come to the kingdom. That's your responsibility. It's not that God needs you. It's not that there's no other savior. God has blessed you for this time, for this place, for this purpose. Esther, that's the responsibility you must recognize. Look at this evil time. Look at this terrible place. Has not God put you here in this kingdom for such a time as this? Go back into your palace. Look at the clothes and the jewels. and Look at your position and say, why has this come to me? Why am I so privileged? Why was I given these benefits? He says, you'll find the answer. This is not all for you. It's for others. And we can say the same thing about us. What responsibility would I lay upon you today? Not the responsibility of what we can give to God. The responsibility of what he has freely given to us. For isn't it true that you've come to the kingdom? And God would say to us, as we read this morning from Ephesians 2, think of where you were. Dead in sin. Without hope, without God in the world. Think of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, what he's meant to you, how he's loved you, and the privileges 
that you enjoy your families, your friends, your new life in Christ. Why? Why has all this come to you? It's not that God is coming to you and saying, I need you. God says, I have loved you freely. It's not that the cause of God in the world or this town will perish without you. It's not true. Have not you come to the kingdom, though, for such a time as this? Does not God have a purpose, a greater purpose? Why has this happened to you? It's not for you alone. You are to say with the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? That's the responsibility we must recognize. We have been greatly, greatly privileged. A kingdom and priests to our God that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not that there's no other savior, but in the darkness of this time and this place, he has called you for such a time as this. Mordecai also warns Esther of a tragedy, a tragedy that must be avoided. My third point, the tragedy to avoid. If you remain completely silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai warns Esther that in this calling, there, there is no middle ground. There is no safe place between the two extremes. She, she cannot apt out. She cannot refuse decision. She can't say, well, it's not my problem. She can't say, this has nothing to do with me. Mordecai says it's not true. If you remain silent, you won't remain neutral. You won't escape. You and your father's family will perish. You can choose to serve God. Or you can perish. You will suffer for your cowardice, though the Jews will be delivered. But no other opportunity is open. And the starkness of this choice does face every individual in this world. Jesus says, he who is not for me is against me. You can serve God or you can perish, but there is no third option available. Here is the tragedy that we must avoid. So many people go through life thinking that they are neutral toward God. Well, God's all right. Glad that other people can serve him. Me, I'm neutral. There is no neutrality. He who is not for me is against me. And this sets before us the starkness of that choice. Esther, for her part, she was very reluctant. She, she knew that this would perhaps mean her life. Uh, we, we have preserved for us in archaeology a, uh, a, a frieze, a wall um, uh, sculpture from those days in Susa. Uh, there's uh, the king and his royal court, and there's a guy with an axe. <laughs> um, anybody that comes in to see the king undisturbed gets the axe. 
is a tremendous risk. You're going to have to risk all. And Esther commits herself to God. If I perish, I perish. And what a tremendous change takes place. Previously, she was consumed with herself. I can't go. Suddenly, she's concerned about others. Previously, she was ready for millions of her people to die as long as she stayed alive. By the end of this chapter, she's ready to lose her life on the chance that others may be saved. She's active, not passive. She's speaking, not silent. She's taking a risk in faith and not cowering in fear. She avoids the tragedy. But the fourth and final thing from the passage we'll see this evening is the opportunity we must grasp. The opportunity we must grasp. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. And Esther, as she heard these words, must have said, Mordecai, you've got to be kidding. Of all the unhappy, miserable times to be a Jew, surely this is it. Of all the history of the people of Israel, was there ever a worse time? Such a time as this. Any time would have been better. Any place but this. Dark and threatening days. The people on the verge of extinction by a cruel tyrant. Um, you know what Xerxes was like from history. You know a little bit if you watch the movie 300. Uh, story that uh, Donnelly likes to, to tell is uh, he wanted to invade Greece, right? 300 movie. I haven't seen it, but that's what it's all about. He, he wants to invade Greece, so he has bridges built across the Bosphorus so he can go and invade. A uh, storm came up and broke his bridges. The king was furious. He had all of his engineers beheaded. He sent his soldiers down to the sea to whip the sea with whips because it had been a naughty sea and broken his bridges. That was Esther's husband. He hadn't asked to see her for 30 days. It looked like she may be slipping out of favor. The law was you go in and see him unannounced, un, 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 uncalled for, rather, your head goes off. His best friend Haman hated the Jews with a passion. Esther, by law, could not enter his presence. Mordecai says, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Such a time. Oh boy. Such a place. Of all the unhappy, unfortunate people, why am I here? Mordecai says no. No. This is your perfect time. This is your perfect place. This is the place that God has destined you for from all eternity. This, this most humble, unenviable position of yours uh, a queen from a, from a Jewish orphan captive? Yes, this is the work God has meant for you. You have come to this dark kingdom for such a time as this. Everything is being overruled and guided. Everything that has happened in the story, the king's brutality, Esther's beauty, Vashti's pride, these aren't accidents, or flukes, all part of God's purpose. Now, he says, now is your opportunity. This is the time. This is the place. Grasp this opportunity. P. 
people are saying for us what a dark and evil age we are living in, how it's depressing, how it's discouraging. What can we do? Well, we have more advantages in so many ways than Esther was born with. On October 29, 1941, Sir Winston Churchill went and spoke at Harrow School to the boys' school. It was the darkest hour of the war. England standing alone in so many ways. Many of those young men about to be sent to the front, mere boys, to die. And this is what Churchill said. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. We believe that God's people have a great, great destiny among the nations, among all the peoples. Who knows what can happen? We remember Esther because she grasped that opportunity. In the darkness of the kingdom, she shone forth. In conclusion, there are so many things that we don't know. We don't know what will come. We don't know what God's purposes are at the moment, but this we do know. We know that God is working all things together for our good. We know that, as we read earlier, that there will be in that great day men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, brought safely to eternal glory through our powerful, wise, and loving Heavenly Father. Not through mighty displays of miraculous power as in the days of the Exodus, but through the more ordinary and humble breaking of the seals, the orderings of providence, the blessing of his people grasping their opportunities in the darkness of the hour. That's how it will happen. We can face all things in this life, now and in the future, whatever it may bring. Evil things are coming, heartbreaking things, frustrating things, disappointing things. We don't know what, but this we know. We know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That is enough. Let us pray together then. Our great King and Father in heaven, we have seen the Lord high and lifted up. We've sung this evening of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have read of Christ, into whose hand have fallen all the execution of your decrees, that he also might be heir of all nations. The one who, having purged our sins, has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, henceforth expecting till all his enemies be made the footstool for his feet. We come to you 
in this still dark day with many trials, fightings without, and fears within, yet with this great confidence that you are able to execute with wisdom and power all your good pleasure that the very kings of the earth who take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, that they may either kiss the sun or perish in their way. We pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us and make us fit and meet servants for the need of the hour. We pray that even as we have read of the courage of this woman in a very unenviable position, and yet one that speaks to us down through the ages of the possibility of the moment and the possibility of the present, that you would open our eyes to grasp those opportunities that you have laid before us, that we would walk in those good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in. We pray that you would make your good purposes plain to us in the world and so direct all things that you should be glorified greatly among us now and forever through Jesus Christ our Lord.